1: because it's going to be wheels up. Let's get this show in the air. Well, hello, my friend. It's another episode of Flight Safety Detectives. I know you are back in the Boston area, John, while I'm out here in Colorado basking in sunlight and blue skies after having a little bit of a snowstorm and shoveling two tons of snow. I know that you're just enjoying the fact that I had to go out there and shovel all that snow.
0: I am tickled pink.
1: Yeah, I knew you would be. The good thing is it's going to be 60 degrees and all gone by the weekend. So I can't complain a whole lot. This is just to humble us a little bit.
0: Keep your feet on the ground, so to speak.
1: Exactly. So it's always a great pleasure every week for us to be able to do this podcast. And we really appreciate that fact and also the fact that the show is sponsored by PAMA and Avemco Insurance.
0: Yes, and for all our listeners, if you have an airplane and you're about to renew your insurance, or if you're going to buy an airplane and you need to get insurance, or if you're a flight instructor or a renter, renters need insurance today often, a requirement by some of the, the companies that you rent from, give Avemco a call at 888 879 0389. And if you tell them you've been listening to the flight safety detectives, they give you a 5% discount. You know, they insure Greg, and if they insure Greg, they're ready to take on yeah. the world. <laughs>
1: That's right. Absolutely, man. I'm their biggest safety risk. So, but it's always good because every week you and I have had so many discussions leading up to the show and when we record it. That, you know, I get excited about the fact that not only do we have great subjects to talk about, but we also bring on great people who are subject matter experts. One of the, the concerns I have, of course, over this past week was a tragic general aviation accident down in Pembroke Pines, Florida. It was a beach bonanza, turbocharged beach bonanza that apparently had been imported from South Africa in pieces the two guys that were on board the aircraft apparently owned and this is all early information but these two guys apparently owned some sort of aircraft brokerage they
2: supposedly reassembled this airplane painted it up nice and pretty it was a low
1: time airplane very low time which i find very hard to believe but again i haven't seen any of the records but when you have a 1997 vintage airplane with only 357 hours or thereabouts total time. You got to start questioning things. But uh, apparently, they had had numerous mm. problems. Uh, they were troubleshooting them. And on this particular takeoff, that airport, and John, you're familiar with that airport because uh, you spent a lot of time down in Florida. In fact, you were just out there, I think, very recently. But for folks that know that airport down there, North Perry, I believe it's what it's called. It's got a short runway and that airport is surrounded by houses and, and offices and things like that. So there's not a lot of margin of error and margin of safety when it comes to putting the aircraft down in places, especially after you lose an engine right at takeoff like these folks did and the proverbial. 180-degree turn back to the runway, which the FAA has coined the impossible turn. We've been talking about this particular maneuver for years and trying to educate pilots. This was a classic case where it looks like they tried to come back around, except uh, being at very low altitude and low airspeed, not a lot of margin there. They ended up stalling the airplane, and unfortunately, this tragic accident was caught on a uh, ring doorbell video. So you actually watch the sequence of as the aircraft strikes the ground and it actually struck a passing SUV. Unfortunately, a four-year-old boy was killed in the SUV, of course, with the two occupants of the airplane. And as a flight instructor, you know, you start talking about the impossible turn. And there are pros and cons. The FAA has has talked about the impossible turn over the years. I know that a good friend of ours, Ryan Schiff and Barry Schiff, have talked about the fact that you can do the impossible turn safely. You have to have skills. You have to have at least some demonstrated practice. Uh, You can't just go out there and expect to be able to do it. And so there's a a lot of pros and cons, and I think that it's going to be, I know that we've had Brian on our show, and it may be time to get him back on to talk about all of the stuff that he did with the Impossible Turn, and and he has a 172 that he uses. You always preach it at the end of the shows about pre-flights and that kind of stuff. Part of that pre-flight, and I think about it, I, I plan for it when I take off, is If something happens below 500 feet, where am I putting this airplane down? And while I have several home airports, if you will, I know what's at the end of each of these airports. I know which direction I have to go if something happens taking off on the various runways. Pilots need to make sure that they have plan A and plan B. When they're taking off, whether it's from their home airport or from, of course, a unfamiliar airport, you got to look at pull up Google Earth. If you don't know the area, pull up Google Earth, get an idea of what the terrain, what the um, what the environment is around these airports, because if you lose the engine at 200 feet, you're not turning around. You're going to have to go straight ahead and you're going to have to find the best place. It's just sad because when you and I see these types of accidents like we've seen over the years and where you have an innocent, in this case, an innocent bystander that is a mother and her four-year-old child in a car who, unknowingly, unsuspecting, gets whacked by an airplane coming out of the sky, it's very tragic. The loss of life and, of course, the trauma that it causes in the neighborhoods, it's uh it's very sad. So, we're going to be talking more about the impossible turn, if you will, and, and what pilots and, and airports can do to help mitigate
2: this. Good morning. Drown the ground, Canadian 920. We're just coming up to Alpha, Juliet. A920, runway
0: 24- so, folks, we have Sandy Murdoch with us today, who in his prior uh, lives was the chief counsel of the FAA. He was also an acting deputy administrator of the FAA, and he has also worked for numerous. Law firms, before and after his time with the FAA. So, welcome, Sandy.
2: Good morning or afternoon, excuse me. Well, it it
1: all depends. It's five o'clock somewhere. To, yeah, it's not five o'clock here in Colorado, Sandy. So, <laughs> but Sandy, one of the things that uh, we had talked about with a previous guest, John Allen, who you know very well. We got into a variety of of subjects regarding the FAA, but we really didn't dig into their issues with what has transpired since the 737 MAX events took place and, of course, all of the fallout from that. And then after uh, a couple of years of consternation and, of course, uh, getting beat up by not only uh, our congressional members, but now basically other organizations, certifying organizations around the world, there is a loss of confidence in the FAA. And, and I think the first question I want to ask you is, you got Steve Dixon, who's the administrator. We now have a new administration with President Biden, and he brought on uh, political appointee Brad Mims, who um, is a veteran with regard to the FAA. So I know you're going to have to break this down and unpackage it, but where do you see the FAA going and what are they going to have to do to regain that stature worldwide, given the fact that there is a significant loss of confidence in their ability from the fallout of the the 737
2: MAX? Well, thanks for having me. I had to Crank up my chair a couple of levels to be feel like I could see you guys eye to eye as we talk. Um, <laughs> it's very, very tough. And I think it's stick to basics, get down to doing what they do well and concentrate on that. I think the best way to work the way out of it is just to get the next series of major decisions absolutely right. And I think that's something that I hope Captain Dixon can do. But there are th- some things that I think should be done on a less direct way that can help rebuild, as John has called in a couple of papers, the gold standard that has been recognized around the world. First and foremost, we've got to recognize that IASA, the European Aviation Safety Administration, is in a positive, aggressive mode of trying to build strong relations with countries with whom we've had great relationship for years and years and years. They even have an initiative involving Latin America. And we have to recognize that and deal with it affirmatively, not you know, kick sand or anything, but just recognize that we have somebody out there who's trying to convince them that their way of certificating is better than the FAA's. And that has all kinds of subsidiary impact. The second thing that I think we really need to know is that the word promote was in the statute, and now Chairman DeFazio, several years ago, got it removed. And it's superficially an easy thing to do, but it wasn't intended to be promote like cell Boeing. It was promote as in cell FAA and the American high standard. Of aviation stuff, so those are two subtle but immediate things that need to be mindful of. They're not necessarily, you know, have big poster boards walking around saying, "FA is better than the asa Just doing the work, and we need to recognize that the work is technical people. And over thirty years, forty years that I've been watching the FAA, the people who have been stationed around the world were knowledgeable, energetic FAA employees, people who really wanted to do their job well. The level of people who are in the international offices, FAA people who are overseas is very small. As best I can tell, there's somebody in Singapore and somebody in Brussels. It's hard to tell because the FAA doesn't publish telephone books anymore. But I think there's one of those in each And the person in Singapore is a former political appointee. So I don't know. A fellow named Vishal Amin has been recently named to go to India. And that's good because he is of that background. He's an Indian by birth. And I think an Air Force Academy graduate. And I think somebody John knows. But the COVID thing has stopped him from doing it.
0: Sure. You know, Sandy... They've reduced those offices to one person. I visited Singapore and Europe uh, multiple times on on NTSB Business, and there was always a team of people there in Singapore. And in India, I've been to India. And in Europe, you know, we had an an FAA person in London, in Paris, in uh, Rome. I've met with all of them while I was over there. So it was more than just a person. But they've pulled back, probably because of budget concerns. They've pulled back all those people. I mean, we had uh, maintainer. I've known several of them that were over either maintenance or certification. Beth Erickson was one. Jay Hiles was over in in Singapore, and they brought their expertise and Steve Wallace in Rome. Right, Steve Wallace in Rome.
2: But yes, those people were gone, and, and they now are listed on the FA International as there's being somebody called care of FAA at an embassy. And I think those are some sort of Department of State people who really aren't necessarily knowledgeable about the issues. And that's really what was happening there. You know, Steve Wallace would talk to people and tell them what he knew about, you know, the kinds of things that. Don and Greg do every day. I mean, he was technically very, very competent. Yeah. He's building his own airplane at the moment. That's not there anymore, and that's horrible. And the hope, some ways, is for me, is that Lawrence Wildgood, who was recently appointed to the Assistant Administrator for Policy, International Affairs, and Environment, who is a veteran of the Senate Aviation Committee and worked for Senator Cantwell. He knows about the state of Washington, and I think he probably knows about the fact that Washington's probably least favorite employer, but largest employer, needs the support of the FAA overseas in an educational, not a sales mode. So that's some degree of hope, for me at least.
1: Sandy, you brought something up a little earlier, and that was You know, when you start looking at the FAA and you look at the relationship between the FAA and in a big organization like EASA and then, of course, the other certifying authorities. Of course, one of the criticisms that came out of the 737 MAX issues and the the House testimony was the fact that everybody has characterized this, quote, love in between the FAA and Boeing. The ODA program came under fire. But people really don't understand the ODA program. And if I remember right, you wrote some sort of article recently or in the recent past about the ODA program, could you just give our listeners, John and I have talked about it, but it's good to get a different voice, especially your perspective. Can you just give us the Reader's Digest version of this ODA program and the importance and really the criticality of having a program like this, not only between the FAA and Boeing, but the FAA and other manufacturers? And again, this type of of program does exist outside the United States with EASA and their manufacturers, does it not?
2: Yes, it it exists pretty much every major certificating organization around the world that has the volume of work that the United States and the European countries have. The reason why we have a problem comes from a fairly basic fact. If I'm the head of engineering at Boeing, and it's time for me to go hire some new engineers. They go to MIT and Caltech and all kinds of the most famous aeronautical engineering organizations, and the line for their jobs is very, very long. And it's not just because it's Boeing, it's because they're going to make more money in the immediate term and in the long term. And there's a big career path and it's someplace that engineering is the essence of being. They've had CEOs who were engineers last one really wasn't that good of one, but they've had CEOs who are engineers. The same thing happens when the FAA sends people out and it's, they don't get the people from MIT and Caltech. And they certainly don't have the depth of people. If you look at the engineering organization out in Renton, the, Boeing people who are involved in engineering probably can fill the baseball stadium and the FAA people can't fill the dugout. And that's just, that's a fact of life. That's Congress is never going to appropriate enough funds to have that to be an equal balance of talent and depth of talent. And it's not just talent, it's depth of talent. And so out of that grew the fact for designation and that's something the FAA does almost in every one of its testing functions. They're designated pilot examiners, designated medical examiners, on and on and on. And the DOA is something that was critical. If we didn't have that, we wouldn't have airplanes coming out. Now, is as presently constituted DOA what it should ought to be? No, it's not. and. Frankly, I think this is my own due, not the views of my employers or any of my former employers. Part of the problem is that imbalance still is somewhat there. And the people who deal with the margin of those conversations are aware of the fact that some of the requests by the FAA of the certificating entity, whatever it is, sometimes doesn't really match the refined, defined needs of the analysis. That becomes annoying, and that's the reason why we have a deal. DO. The okay. DOE relationship at Boeing, as evidenced by all of those emails that were disclosed, was not one of high regard by the, the applicant and the certificator. So with that being said, When you talk about the fact of an imbalance and and the FAA not getting the cream
1: of the crop, if you will, because one, they can't be competitive in a salary, such as uh, with a Boeing or even one of the general aviation manufacturers. But two, out of the House hearings, everybody started making this case. Well, why doesn't the FAA just bring this in-house instead of having the designated program? Well, somebody brought up the numbers and said, well, you're going to have to hire 10,000 engineers and you're going to have to increase the FAA's budget a billion dollars. And that's where they left it. And of course, you know, there's been some banter in the media about, well, let's do it. What are you waiting for? Well, we all know in reality that will never happen. So what's the, uh, at least a solution? Do we need to bring more of that authority in-house or do we have to have a tighter rein on the designees?
2: Well, I think Congress actually did something right, which is unusual for me to say, uh, in giving the FA some more money. Whether that's going to carry them far enough to maintain the pace that is required in the global and competitive environment, and that's true in Brazil and Japan and every place else, this is a first the market frequently has an impact, but you still have to have the high level of assurance. And I've written about this before, so my employer, Joe DeBazzo, can't yell at me yet. (laughs) You know, before 1938, before there was a CAA, if you bought your nice little airplane and wanted to go fly it, and you called up your insurance agent and said, want to buy me some insurance, and maybe a Vemco could do that now. And they said, well, how do I know it's safe? What they did then was a company called Underwriters Laboratories. In Illinois, sent their engineers and looked at it, and you paid them a feed, and they said it's airworthy. We now do that with the government. I am not a hundred percent convinced that that wouldn't be a good idea. It's going to be some transition problems. You can't just sort of take all the people who have been doing this work for twenty five years and throw them away. And most importantly, you're going to have to charge somebody for the services. And I see absolutely no reason why that shouldn't be the company that's seeking the certificate. If you were to sit outside of 800 Independence Avenue and watch things walk in and things walk out, the people with the greatest value increase from that visit are the holders of Part 21, Part 23, Part 25, and on certificates. Before they went in there, the certificate was worth nothing. And when it comes out, it's a very valuable asset. Seems to me there's a good economic justification for doing that. The pricing of it and what you get to buy out of it are something that need to be worked out. But that's why we have Congress. It's a very radical idea. shocking and all sorts of stuff. But I'm a history buff, and I found that fact. Some time ago, and find it very fascinating and compelling. But short of that, I think we just need to stick to what we do best and and get to work on
1: it. In your description, you, it had the overtones of privatization, and we continually throw that that word around. You know, taking services and requirements, and and of course,
2: but under job My scenario. The key it, part of my thing is they would do the testing. The FAA would do the standards. So So, when you got your your medical examination, that was privatized. You paid that guy for your your certificate, right? So I I don't think it's that absurd. I think it's going to be an interesting pricing question. And frankly, I love to throw it out, but I know too well how Congress will respond to anything that is logical, rational, and scary. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah john and i have had that discussion as well because you know a lot of their stuff is more emotional than factual or logical and uh and we've kind of questioned that over the uh over the past year on the show so um i appreciate your perspective on all of that
0: sandy i want to go back a minute ago to uh what you said oh, seven minutes ago about EASA. You know, in the, and before I went to the NTSB, I served on a number of, of harmonization committees. And uh, we worked hand in glove with the European authorities, starting with the JAA, and about lining our rules up. And I sat through those meetings when the FAA representative promised we were going to do certain things. And the one that always crushed me was part sixty six of the FAS it was a modernization of part sixty five and I can remember uh, Fred Lee and Ellie and the, I forget the name of the attorney that was assigned to that group we assured the uh, Europeans over and over and over that we were going to implement all those changes and it wasn't just sixty five it was it was a a considerable adjustment to the u s regulations to line them up with where the Europeans wanted to be. So it was a negotiated piece uh, and an update for, for the U.S. So I left the committee and came back, and that work continued. And essentially, the FAA reneged on all the promises they made. We did not adopt all of the rules that we did. The Europeans did because they had a clean sheet of paper. They weren't replacing any rules, really. They were just starting to implement, and they put them in place and i always believe that that was part of the reason why the europeans have been so successful in getting and i don't even know what the current count is but it was it may have actually been triple digits now countries around the world to sign on to the EASA rules and not the faa rules and you know something's got to be done with the system that when you when you decide to go in and make a change to a rule that you're going to be between 10 you know, years and twenty years before you get that rule implemented. I mean we've wanted to write rewrite the repair station rule and it's it's been going on since the nineties. Yeah. Yeah it's you know how do we get the FAA to do their job to move these issues? The answer or the excuse has always been we don't have the money. You know, and many of the improvements that come out of their rulemaking advisory committees Make it to a list, and the list may be three pages long, and they never have enough resources to go past the first page. And, uh, you know, something's got to be done.
2: That's not new. When I was there, Walt Luffey had a list of things, and, and as chief counsel, I attended their quarterly review of where we were on the list. And it's listed in order, not of length of time it's been there, but what they regarded as the safety risk. And I assume with SMS, that's even more precise now. One of the problems is that every bill that we get, reauthorization bill, has 800 sections. About 600 of them are study this do that and they're all within 90 days of completion of the uh, enactment of the statute i exaggerate a bit but there is th- the list of things the fa has to do has that to it it's always inserted and the congressional affairs office calls up ali barami and said number seven on the list needs to get done next tuesday Or the congressman is going to go nuts. Perfect example is the seat standards and the evacuation standards, which have been due for the last six months. And that's a year after the statutory deadline. I don't know how we fix that. I do know that, well, I have suggested that if I'm congressman X and I'm now going to establish the requirement that the tire plies of, all airplanes be assessed as a safety hazard, and maybe that's an issue. But before in my legislation requiring that, I would have to take the FAA list and say it goes number six here in front of the decision about foreign repair stations. That's what we have to do. I mean, you can't, and, you know, with SMS, there's a way to quantify all that and make it fairly rational. Because we just, there are lots and lots of things that are on that list that are just absurd. And they don't necessarily go in the order of their importance. They go in, port, in the order of their the members' rank on the committee. I mean, it used to be ridiculous that, you know, we would, I would get a call from Congressional Affairs Office. I was one of those horrible Reagan Republicans and said that Congressman so and so wants this by next week. And I said, is he a Republican or a Democrat? Those days we took care of the Republicans first. That's the reality of it all. It's Is the process capable of reform? Yes. If you look at a flow chart of an NPRM process from day one to its enactment.
1: Let me just stop you, Sandy, because I, I want to make sure that our listeners understand some of these acronyms. And, I'm sorry. And FARs. No, that's okay. The NPRM is uh, a notice of proposed rulemaking that is part of, really, the regulatory process. So you're drafting this regulation. It goes out for comment. Comments are returned, and then, of course, they're reviewed, and it could go back out for multiple comments. Or based on that, the FAA takes those comments, incorporates it into their ideology or philosophy in the regulation. Okay,
2: back to you. That's, that's, that's a good good primer on it but there's a lot more to it than that sure but the process starts off with somebody usually within the the uh safety office coming up with a good idea and it's assigned to somebody in an organization typically somebody who has some experience in that area and he or she writes a draft rule that's not easy and it's a draft rule that has to be what enforceable it can't just say do good regulations by necessity have to be measurable. And so that gets to be, a, that's a, that's not an easy thing to, to do on, the, on your first life. So what happens with it then? It gets kicked over to the chief counsel's office and the chief counsel people put in those words that make it enforceable. Then it goes through a process that is required by the Office of Management and Budget. And that is you have to go figure out what the economic impact what the impact on small businesses, What the impact of the environment, blah, 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 on and on and on. So then you get a package that's put together. It goes at a very high level of approval within the FAA, chief counsel, head of flight standards, head of policy, the administrator, the deputy administrator. That takes time. When that's done, it's tied up in a bow and sent across the street to the office of the secretary, where typically some of the political hacks like me are there to go say, no, we're not going to do this, or, you know, this semicolon should be a colon, shouldn't it? So when that gets kicked back to the FA again, and they go through and work on all that stuff out, and sometimes some of the comments are very substantive. Some of the political perspectives are valid, and the economic impact really wasn't adequately assessed as an example. So then that all gets through. The secretary says, fine and dandy, and it goes over to the Office of Management and Budget. And I can remember, like it was yesterday, I took a particular rule that Administrator Helms had wanted to get through, and I went over to meet with the OMB officer who was in charge of the rulers review. And the person was very young had graduated from college and her master's degree in less than six years and knew everything. It was very clear. And she said, you know, and I said, no, I don't. And by the way, my boss who helped write this role was involved in exactly what you're talking about and knows the inner workings of all. She says, I don't give a damn. So we had to go back and write it so she was happy. And then you go to the NPRM. Then it goes out for comments and every one of the comments has to be read and then you finally go through that same process not in the same level of detail but again before it goes out as a final rule and then you run the risk of a, of an appeal yeah. to the court. It's easy to say it's just those civil servants who are just taking the good easy time. It's not That's not so. It, it, there is some of that but it is a burdensome process and Yasa doesn't have that same level of burden, at least I don't see. And by the way, if you spend much time trying to read their documents, I know they're writing for four languages, but it tests my capabilities to to yeah. the words. Sometimes answer, I, I'm, not sure, I'm not sure they're better.
1: Yeah, sometimes I can't follow their logic, and it may be just something lost in the interpretation or whatever. But, but it's no it is tough. And and I know that, you know, that is one thing that not only those of us in the industry, the aviation industry, but really in the general population, these are the kinds of things that a lot of people don't understand. You know, they always ask, well, why does it take so long? I mean, it's obvious that you need to do something. The FAA needs to do something to enhance safety. and But that is the process. Now the question is, is there a way, given the fact that When there is a a serious situation, we saw that recently with the engine issue out here in Colorado on a United 777. And that is, they put out an emergency AD, they want all these engines inspected and everything else. Well, if that can be done with a stroke of a pen basically overnight, why can't we streamline the process to improve aviation safety with these critical issues? Why do we have to go through this burdensome process? That's part one. Part two is, is there a way for something to occur to be the 30 micron filter so we filter out the politics and we we are able to prioritize those safety of flight issues? as they should be prioritized and not based on the guy who may be sitting on the um, on the Appropriations Committee and threatening that you don't do this, you don't get money.
2: Well, if we could remove OMB, I think it would speed up the process. Uh, The only thing I could think of is greater involvement earlier by the reviewing. Some of these issues I remember we had a a very high-level meeting within the FAA and a process that we are talking about automated weather observation stations. And God knows how many hundreds of hours have been contributed to figuring out how to do this right. And the idea was that you'd be flying and you could dial into this information source and find out what the weather is. And AWOS would tell you exactly what the weather was at that time at that place. And Tony Broderick said, "I'm not a pilot, but I suspect I don't necessarily care about what the weather is right now at that time. I want to know what it is when I'm supposed to land." And so all the people had to go back and and do their work. If Tony had had the chance to look at it earlier, maybe we'd save some time. And I think that's the same thing here, that some of the So many of the political people in OM, in the secretary's office, are uncomfortable meeting directly with the career civil servants. They find that their statement of political objectives can be more robust, clearer, whatever, when they're talking to fellow political hacks. It was interesting, Drew Lewis, when I was there, would have meetings in his office he would invite who would come. So, example, I went to a meeting one time and sat down at the table and saw my deputy across the table. Drew was not afraid to tell people what he thought were legitimate concerns, and more importantly, he wanted the people who were there to give him his advice. It takes a lot of comfort with your masculinity. I think it's the way William Raspberry put it about (laughs) Ronald Reagan. Um, It takes a lot of that. I'm not sure every secretary has that. Yeah. Unless we start integrating those views earlier or removing the need for those views, and so the choice between those two is integrate, it's going to take time. And it doesn't necessarily contribute to the quality of the rulemaking. I can't tell you how many times I looked at a document that came out of flight Standards And I knew the person who'd written it and asked him or her to come see me. And I said, this is not as clear as you're capable of writing. And the draft person said, you're right. I did that intentionally because I knew those jerks across the street were going to make me do it over again. So I didn't bother to make it perfect.
1: Wow. That's a sad testament. We have been talking about big airplanes, airlines, and and manufacturers like Boeing and the certification. What's your take on general aviation these days? We see, of course, not only the fact that whether it's because of the pandemic or just general aviation as a whole, the manufacturing of certificated aircraft has you know, it it varies. It goes up. It goes down. And we have their the established manufacturers. We've seen, of course, a lot more home built aircraft and experimental aircraft. And and of course, one of my biggest concerns was the sports pilot certificate for a variety of different reasons. And of course, that means uh, with the sports certificate, the pilots weren't required to meet all the standards as. As that of a private pilot or whatever, and now the FAA wants to, uh, or is in the process of allowing uh, folks that fly with under basic med to fly larger aircraft and fly more people in those aircraft, and um, with all of the health concerns these days, especially now with COVID, but you know some of the um, the underlying conditions that we've seen in our society. Just give me your take on general aviation as a whole from a global perspective.
2: Well, general aviation is a very loose term these days. If you look at the business aviation, COVID has taken a lot of executives and said, getting on the airplane with these other people ain't a good thing to do, so I'm going to justify getting my G3 out and, and flying around a little bit more. The other aspect of it from a manufacturing standpoint the new prescriptive regulations, performance regulations as opposed to prescriptive regulations, has stimulated the heck out of Part 23 applications. And the innovations that are there are amazing. Whether there's going to be demand after all of this economic impact, that's beyond my, my capabilities. But the thing I find amazing, looking back 10, 15 years ago, particularly when I left the FAA, I said, you know, deregulation has pumped up a lot of the airlines, but the industry in general, I think, is reaching a maturity where, where growth is going to slow down or come to a halt. But recently, with these unmanned vehicles and all the different dimensions, excuse me, unpersoned vehicles, um, see, <laughs> there's an initiative to make sure that man gets out of the regulation that's exciting. whether it has the outcome that that is is anticipated or not is not another thing on the safety side, your friends out at Frederick have a lot more cloud, and they are convinced that the marginal benefit health standards is not that great and more than likely to sell some of those airplanes and they've gotten gotten pretty far along. The interesting thing is that the FA has a new head of medicine i wrote about her recently i can't remember her name but god gave me a computer and she's very impressive she's got the kind of credentials that you really really want to see in the
1: faa yeah and, that's uh dr susan northrup
2: right so it'll be interesting to see how she deals with that and frankly the whole medical part of the faa has not had a great recent history you know the bad Albert rules and caused a lot of backlash. And, And there's a lot of negativity associated with the flight standard people. I mean, with the aviation medicine people. So I have some hope that that's going to get better. I also have to say that I'm impressed with the degree to which AOPA has done a good job at being more proactive in training, particularly on weather issues and stuff like that. So I'm somewhat hopeful that that's for the upturn. I think even Europe seems to be coming a little more open to general aviation, which at one point in time they were sort of like considered like fighter planes to be shot down. Um, um, but, you know, the YASA material on that is generally pretty positive and frequent. So I don't know. I'm not a good prognosticator there.
1: Let's switch then to one thing that, uh, of course, is now evolving and really comes under the FAA purview and made some news recently with a very wealthy individual, Elon Musk, and the fact that he couldn't launch his rocket because the FAA had some safety concerns. What's your take now on, on commercial space and the FAA's responsibility with regard to commercial space? I know that uh, Elon Musk lit up the FAA, thinking that because of his money and uh, and his power, that they should be listening to him. What do you see in the immediate future, given the fact that we are moving at a very quick pace for commercial space? And they're looking to hopefully have folks paying passengers, if you will, in space before the end of the year.
2: Well, let me make a couple of different. Observations. One, the whole aspect of entrepreneurs trying to deal with the FAA is a matter of some concern. When Amazon first came to bring the idea of drones flying their packages around and basically tried to browbeat the administrator, it just didn't happen well. I mean, that's, you know, they're used to beating up on the Stillwell, Oklahoma building code man and getting their way with it. Doesn't happen with the FAA. That's number one. Number two, I really can't say anything about the competence of the FA space transportation certificating organization. I don't I don't know the people, I don't know the engineering chemistry, whatever. So I, I really can't say anything about that. What I can say is that I am very worried that the FAA has a very important, difficult mission already, just with big small and and medium to add now drones that will become more populist than bees I think in the near future and space really stretches their competence. There is no special there's no particular continuity between space shots and what the FAA does except for the air traffic and that's something you could deal with differently. I don't see any particular reason why it had to be an FAA thing. It just doesn't seem to me that it it fits naturally. And they have people with impressive names and titles and stuff like that, but I just I don't know how Steve Dixon can be working on the future of air traffic on international aviation issues and trying to figure out what the heck is going on with with space. That's just my.
1: Do you think that do you think that NASA could have been at least uh, either reorganized or a department added to NASA since they are the experts in uh, rocketry and space and provide them with some authority to be the regulators of space and let them deal with it since they have the personnel, the resources and that kind of thing and take that space away from the FAA but have some sort of liaison or coordination with the FAA.
2: I mean, I suspect that's a good idea. I suspect it's something that the purists at NASA will say, over my dead body, we don't regulate, we just do the things we do and do them well. I would love to see our friends over at the Office of Secretary who already are omniscient to take this in and actually see them try to integrate space with the rest of transportation. That's their real job. It's not to be setting all well, the help to give the FAA. Their real job is, is to be integrating these policies and what's the need for space transportation and what ground infrastructure needs to support that and the safety areas for landing and all kind of stuff seems to me to be into the policy arena of the Office of Secretary of Transportation. I think they give them more to do means there's less knowledge
0: in the FAA. One of the things that I heard that that was the rub with SpaceX was that whenever he shut down the airspace to do one of his tests, it impacted on Houston. And the airlines through the A four A have been complaining like crazy that because he shuts down good block of airspace that they have to take on extra fuel and it, and they're spending an extra several minutes on average per flight, to get in and out of that already congested airspace down there. It was really an airspace issue that was causing SpaceX all the grief. And it was partially themselves because just this week again, they shut down a ground road that's near their facility for five days because they're going to launch one test rocket. But they've got a window of time of five days blocked out which means air traffic has got to route airplanes around him for five days for the possibility of him having a test flight. So that's that's been the rub. Maybe they could start launching in Fort Lauderdale. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) I I think that's the main reason why he went and bought that oil rig.
2: Well, if he can launch from Fort Lauderdale, we know somebody will
0: (laughs) be upset. Yeah, I think in a couple of years from now, he'll be launching... Into the water, into the Gulf, and be further away so we won't have that problem. Travel pitch field. Mav exterior lab. Servo control. Sandy,
1: uh, you, you write a lot of articles uh, that appear on, um, on JDA Aviation's website. And one of the things that I'm interested in, and you recently wrote about it, was wildlife. I'm working, I worked a, a citation that uh, landed in South Carolina and Greenville, South Carolina. And during rollout, the aircraft hit a deer, split open the leading edge of the wing, started uh, losing fuel, the airplane caught fire and burned up on the runway. And currently I'm working a couple of bird strike accidents. And these aren't just small birds. I got a 172 that flew through a pelican at pretty high altitude. You talked about it in your article about some of the mitigation. And I remember eons ago, because I did some research on it, that the DOT IG was critical of the FAA and their wildlife hazard mitigation program and that kind of stuff. And uh, I found your article interesting. Of course, there's been a lot of work, but is it enough? And what needs to be done. I know that airports are of concern as a kid, because I grew up in the D.C. area. I used to go out to Buzzards Point right off the end of the runway at (laughs) Washington Reagan. Yeah. And there were always birds out there for a variety of different reasons. Never thought anything of it until I got older and got into this business. And now I know exactly what the impact of those birds are on airplanes, especially in that segment of flight at Washington National. But do you see we are doing enough and the FAA is doing enough? Is there a point where there's nothing more to be done? I mean, we've used as much technology with, with ultrasound and we got dogs running around on airports to scare the birds and we use cannons and everything else. I, I mean, I, I fly out of Gaithersburg and they put a fence around that airport and we still have deer jumping the fence and getting on the runway and, and things like that. I know that you know. Looking at your uh, your article, you know, you talked uh, about a variety of things that uh, you know the Forest Service and, and groups like that are doing. Just give our listeners a, a little bit of a, an insight into what you wrote.
2: Well, you obviously, I'm very glad to hear you're a frequent reader, but you didn't read yesterday's. St. Patrick is the answer. He chased the snakes out of Ireland. Let's get him involved in. No, I'm finished. <laughs> <laughs> Why didn't I think? See,
1: the solution is so simple, Sandy. I didn't even think of it.
2: (laughs) Yeah, turns out I think I'm I'm Scottish. I'm according to my DNA, I'm 92 percent Irish, which is one of the reasons why I'm a good writer because I make stuff up as as Irish memory. I call it. It's impressive to me the degree to which USDA, the FAA, TRB, the airport research. People have done trying to come up with creative ways, including you know doing things that just have to do with the topography to make it difficult for certain breeds to get on field. I think it's just one. It's like most of aviation safety. It's a constant awareness, a constant looking for answers, and we're we're never going to get to zero. But you know, the only thing we can do is a recognize that we're coexisting with. A species that isn't necessarily attuned to the same stimuli as we are, and figure out how best to, uh, to defend against the problems. To you know, how you get an airplane and a bird at forty thousand feet to avoid each other. I don't know. Maybe we have to put transponders on the birds or something. And then what, what pull up might actually be scary at the bird. I I don't know. It's something that I. Repeat in the blog on a fairly regular basis because I think it bears repeating. I'm I'm hardly an expert uh, on wildlife other than my years. Also, as a native Washingtonian down in of Virginia, killing off armadillo that threatened Mrs. Kennedy's horse. <laughs> Honest to God, my father and I were sitting on a hill killing woodchucks. And two Secret Service agents came over the fence behind us on horses, told us to open up the breaches, And then Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis jumped the fence about 150 yards, easy shot (laughs) for us, left or right. And I was 16 years old, and I think my pupil was permanently damaged (laughs) by the degree to which it was open. But it's, um, yeah, I, I think it's something that all of us need to be aware of. And I think they have the right people looking at it. I'm impressed with some of the creative solutions. And, and that's why I, I sort of documented. I thought they were kind of interesting stuff. And that silly dog. I love that story about it. Uh, with the His owner put the, the uh, aviator goggles on and stuff like that. Yeah. It really worked. Birds yeah. don't like dogs barking at them. My beetle's outside barking at something right now. I'd like to do a little more talking, if it's okay, about rebuilding the FA around the world. Sure. Is that right? Yep. I'm, I'm not saying I have any absolute evidence, but I am sufficiently aware of when I was at the FA, my counterparts around the world, uh, including some of the not-so-huge and important places, that I think IASA, our International Aviation Safety Audit, assessment audits, a dirty word, is a problem. I mean, in 1990, we had the Avianca crash and Congress reacted to that. It became a responsibility requirement. And it's a requirement. It's at least triplicating or quadruplicating, whatever the fourth level is, of ICAO, IASA, IATA, the FAA. And I remember meeting the, Director General of Civil Aviation in Brazil, former four-star general in the Air Force, probably really didn't care very much about civil aviation, but got a nice office and nice salary. And I can just envision one of the IASA people is probably a grade 12 guy who's busting his tush to get up to the next level and make a name. After he or she has done the the review of ANAC turning to this four-star general and saying, listen, kid, you guys aren't good enough. That's obviously not – it's a good example because it wouldn't happen with Brazil. But that's what worries me. The people who are involved in this project are by definition not diplomats and are likely not to deliver these messages with the greatest – of uh diplomacy. Or at the other end of the scale, I was actually consulting for the Israeli government when they had a meeting about one of their BASA agreements. Um, and the again, the, the general fighter pilot, who was my client, came after a couple of drinks at the cocktail party and says, Sandy, we're in great shape. Uh, they're really ready to to move us up another level. And I said, well, that's great. So I spent about 10, 15 minutes talking to some of my old buddies, and they said, we're about ready to pull their boss up. So that's the reverse phenomena. The engineers are not necessarily gifted at diplomatic talk. They were trying to downplay the problems and completely lost it on this guy. I just think this is not a good thing for us to be in. I don't know why we need four of them. I don't know why it's a Audit. I know they don't call it that, but I don't understand why it's an audit. What these people need is not somebody to come in and tell them bad. Somebody to sit there and help them rebuild to something good. You know, the whole principles of SMS say we shouldn't be doing enforcement as it were, and that's what it really is. I mean, if you have a a category two uh, standard on IASA, it's huge economic impact. And if you follow what happened when President Obama went to India, it's a joke. I mean, it was 100% clear that they were restored to level one with five, count them, five conditions subsequent. And none of the five I can ever find were rectified. So I think we ought to get out of that business. And I would say that we ought to get a joint process between all four of the people who are involved in it hire some people either within the industry or without to go in like it was an SMS audit. And, you know, so you, you you go through one of these things and the guy tells you your relationship between you and your boss is inappropriate because your boss is a political appointee and your boss reports directly to the prime minister. So I go to my boss and say, you don't have, I don't have to talk to you anymore. Probably not a good thing. Good idea, even in a more diplomatic or generous way, just the notion that the FAA tells us that we, a sovereign nation, can no longer have you and me talk or report to you. That's not the way to do it. But what you do do is have somebody who's there, who's an independent third person recognized expert, to go to the head of the transportation organization and countrywide and say, the. Global model is that we give some independence. That increases the stature of the person who works for you. It gives you some added freedom of time, and it gives the world your blessing. That's not something the FAA auditors could do or should do, and I think we need to move away. You know, the government of the United States has something called the TDA, and it's, its job is to promote transportation entities around the world for the United States. Why couldn't they fund this third, third party effort? I don't know. It's just something I think, like my idea of Underwriters Laboratory, while totally rational, may not be well accepted. I think this has a little bit more acceptability. If nothing else, we free all those people who are doing the IASA stuff, and they can go work as aeronautical engineers, you know, out in Renton or someplace. It's a lot of the things that living outside the building and having absolute total 100% vision and absolutely zero responsibility for implementing is something I think we need to do to get from here to there. It's just something I think that, that could help. And, you know, that's what you guys are really about is improving safety. And we have, what is it, miles to go before I sleep?
0: Well, there's there's no shortage of work in this business. No shortage of work.
2: Yeah, well, that's what I think we need to Need to figure out how to do, and you guys have the audience that maybe somebody will say, hmm, "Have my second cup of coffee." I- idiot Murdoch doesn't sound quite as crazy now that I've had some coffee, and maybe we ought to do it. And you know, if you guys say it makes sense, the number of idiots will uh,
0: will decrease. Well, we certainly need to change what we're doing because we're not getting the results that we need. No. You know that saying about only a fool does the same thing over and over, expecting different results. And uh, too many of of institutions are just doing the same things over and over.
2: I think it's sort of Einstein's definition of insanity, right?
0: Yep, that's what it was. So yeah, it must be true. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. Well, it's crazy times. I just uh, I feel bad for the you know the overall FAA because they really have taken a beating, and, and that really not justified.
2: Yeah, and the Boeing Max eight was horrible, and and the people who had to follow the hand grenades weren't the people who made the problem. That's very very difficult. Uh, Dan Elwell was not the guy that allowed the ODA to do what they did, and he, you know, got excoriated more than the average ordinary human being. I don't think that's fair or right or neat or just or whatever that Episcopalian prayer is.
0: Well, you know, when you, you get between Congress and a problem, it can be painful, especially if Congress created the problem, because then they're going to want no responsibility for it, and they're going to be looking doubly or triply hard at passing that blame off to some other entity.
2: I don't think members of Congress are conscious of or aware of the degree to which when they say jump, the people in the FAA and other places don't just jump, they go nuts. And, John, I'm sure you remember well the hearings on the Dallas Bizno and the whistleblowers and all that kind of stuff. However right or wrong it was, what they did by yelling and screaming at those people is the people in the FAA headquarters organization were... Emasculated. And that's an odd term to use for Peggy Gilligan, but that's what happened. I mean, thereafter, the line people in the FAA said, We don't have to listen to you. Yes, there were things that went wrong there. And yes, they needed to be brought forward and given good publicity. But they're meat cleavers in a surgical world, is the way I would think of it. And it's Partnership DeFazia knows the world better than. That And he says, you know, the only person that was smarter than him was Jim Oberstar, <laughs> And they both are doing a great job of representing aviation safety. But we got to remember, you're the board of directors of the FAA, whether you like it or not, the Congress and Senate. And the people in the FAA listen. And they somewhat overreact, in fact. And so it'll be we need to get to a situation where you have greater comprehension between the two. I mean, I had a very famous congressman from Georgia staffer called me up in in the middle of the PACA strike and say, I want Jones restored to the air traffic control tower in in Atlanta. And I said, yes, ma'am, I will issue a press release saying that Congressman Gingrich ordered the FAA to rehire a fire controller. "Well, That's not exactly what I meant. I said, that's what you did mean. They just They're not ignorant. They're trying to do their job. First Amendment's a big deal to them. They want to get their constituents well taken care of, and they do. The people up in in Albany are still working hard on issues that I really don't think had anything to do with the crash. It's too exciting. (laughs) We need to have less reason for anybody saying anything about aviation being guaranteed to be on the evening news. Excluding you, Greg, you you could be on all the evening news. We'll we'll designate you.
1: Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Sandy, I know that uh, we we've talked a lot, and uh, and again, we uh, we always try to bring on folks that have a a greater subject matter expertise than John and I, and uh, we always want to try and bring our listeners a different perspective. The FAA, as we've talked about, is uh, is currently under constant fire especially now and again a lot of folks even in our industry have questioned their competence their uh their abilities to uh certify aircraft or oversee aviation and things like that and while some of the criticism is probably uh warranted there's always a backstory and john and i made this show about backstories and the stories in the shadows Because there's always something else going on that the casual observer or somebody sitting in front of a TV watching a, a news story about the FAA doesn't really understand the backstory. And you being in the government, John and I, having been in the government, we were exposed. We saw those backstories. We understand what takes place behind the scenes that does influence. And while it doesn't look logical to the observer We understand why things do happen or don't happen. So we appreciate you uh, coming on the show and and bringing some of that perspective. I know that we always try to make our subject matter experts a a friend of the show so that we can bring you back whenever we have issues to discuss and, and that kind of stuff where we know your subject matter expertise will be very beneficial. And I do want to have you back on the show, hopefully in the near future. Because I want to talk about general aviation and general aviation pilots, the compliance action, the philosophy of the FAA, just with the fact that, uh, you know, the, the FAA has gone through its ups and downs with enforcement actions against pilots. And they went to the kinder, gentler methodology, and then they went back to compliance through enforcement and now they're back to this compliance action where they try to do counseling and and a lot of that came up with harrison ford since he made the news multiple times with some of his exploits so we want to get you back on the show and and give our audience who uh, you know a lot of them are general aviation pilots and and aircraft owners i know would find a discussion like that beneficial so just plan on being just plan on being back on the show
2: I'd love to. Today's blog is on enforcement, and Administrator Dixon saying that zero tolerance is going to be in effect as long as we have masks on board. I think zero tolerance for flight attendant assault should be a permanent rule. I'm sure John will agree with me. It's just ridiculous what people think they can get away with in dealing with flight attendants. And as a former airline employee, I think it's absurd the notion that it was ever sexual is horrible but just any kind of that stuff and sending people to jail like it or not are um uh, something that that eventually will get the sober people to understand so
1: yep and and it, and it is sad because you know just looking at it i fly just about every week i'm leaving on a trip again today the lack of respect that uh you know some of these folks have, and especially recently, with the abuse, just the abusive behavior by passengers, the def- the defiance of you know their their personal belief that they don't think they have to wear masks, so they have no respect for fellow passengers, and and of course the flight crew, and then the flight crews are, are left to deal with unruly passengers, guys who or gals who have been are intoxicated or whatever just add to it so yeah we can definitely do a whole show just on on all of that and i know that uh, that too will be a topic of discussion as passengers return to flying
2: and, and trafficking uh, in the same sort of it's another one of the things that really doesn't meet what jda does But god that bothers me
1: yeah.
2: the fact that planes are being used for this is just horrible yep so.
1: well Again, we appreciate you being on the show today, Sandy.
2: And I can now uh, crank down my chair about six inches at my (laughs) normal level. (laughs) (laughs) Higher air is something that's scary to an old fart like me.
1: Yeah, exactly. Well, thanks for uh, taking the time to be on the show with us. Thank you. Well, John, I think this was uh, another great show. I know that our listeners will find this informative. And, um, and we appreciate your feedback as our listeners. Uh, John and I have gotten a lot of emails recently. One email in particular that John and I are preparing a show for with regard to some of the comments we made on a previous show about a study that was conducted by Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University, a, uh, a PhD student there, and uh, we've got a, uh, uh, an email from a listener who basically categorized me and John as just a couple of old white guys who don't know what we're talking about. So we're putting that show together right now to address that particular email, some of the concerns, and uh, we're looking to have the author of that study on our show. So look forward to that. And, John, I know that, uh, you know, with our listeners and the, they send us emails, which we encourage you to do, good, bad or indifferent, you can always touch base with us at our email at flightsafetydetectiveswithans at gmail.com. And, of course, John and I try to respond to everything. And then when we find emails like this of particular interest or whatever, we, we're going to start putting them. We're going to start talking about them on the show. We're going to try and. Bring those folks on that uh, can give the, the perspective to that email and, and help us address these emails. Because, hey, we all know, John and I are very aware that, yeah, you may not agree with everything we say, and that's fine. That's that's the whole purpose of this show. We bring experts on, folks that uh, have been in the industry, to give a, a perspective as well. And, again, we appreciate just trying to educate. We're going to try and give you all sides When we dissect things, of course, we always talk with factual information and and a high level of knowledge. We can't always disclose how we know things, but we know things. And so, again, we appreciate our listeners' points of view as well. And so, you know, John and I have these discussions just like we're going to have a discussion right now from John.
0: Oh, (laughs) I just I just wanted to to let our our listeners know that. On a recent show, we talked to one person who sent us an email. We read the email and thought it was interesting, and we contacted that person and had her on the show. There's another email that just caught my attention earlier today and that I'm going to reach out and uh, see if they're willing to come on the show. I think that may be a regular feature, not every show, but a regular feature on the show where we reach out to our listeners that have a different view a more informed view, something that separates it from us and our opinions, and bring them on the show and talk about it. Because we realize that we always don't have the uh, 100% accurate. We may not know something, and we're willing to listen. I'm willing to change, and we hope all of you, likewise, willing to listen and willing to change when you find out you're doing something that's not quite right. So with that, Greg, I'll let you uh, start the closing. Well,
1: thank you, John. I always appreciate when you give me that uh, that duty and responsibility. Again, we want to thank you the listeners. You're the ones that make this show, and your feedback is is very valuable to us about the quality of the show and, and that kind of thing. And again, John and I, because of our travel schedules and, and responsibilities, we are trying to evolve the show especially as we've talked about over the past year and getting more into the video part of it. and We're now moving into at least the third quarter of that whole process. So hopefully we'll have it up and running very soon. And then of course, uh, we always... I want to thank our, uh, our listeners who have contributed money. I saw recently that we've had a number of our listeners contribute money to the operation of the show and, and helping us produce the show. So for those of uh, you that have contributed, thank you very much for your contribution. That means a lot to John and I. Again, we bring this show to you because we have this passion. And while, yes, we are, are paying for it, and we do appreciate the, the money that our sponsors provide us. And of course, our donors, um, every little bit helps to keep this show going and growing. So that's what we're attempting to do, hopefully in the very near future. And um, given the fact that we do have two prominent sponsors, Kama and Avemco, we really appreciate the fact that they've stepped up to, uh, to help us over the past year and a half grow this show. And you can always get a hold of a BemCO if you have any kind of aircraft insurance needs. They are outstanding to work with. I've always had a great relationship with them because they have uh, they have been my insurance company for my aircraft. They have been responsive, they're attentive. And um, I can't say uh, anything about the fact other than the fact that uh, they've always been very receptive. To assisting me in uh, in my insurance needs. So definitely check them out at abemco.com. You're going to be talking directly to the insurance company, not through a broker. And I think that that in and of itself does a lot to foster a good relationship um, between, of course, the client or customer and the insurance company. So with that, John, I will leave you again with the last words.
0: Okay. And uh, just to add on, Vemco's phone number is 888-879-0389. So if you need any form of aviation insurance, give them a call. And we're still in the midst of COVID. So please, in your personal life, wear a mask, wash your hands, do everything that's appropriate so you don't catch this terrible disease. And if you're flying, please, 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 do a good pre-flight, which includes planning your trip out. As Greg mentioned in the beginning of the show, you need to have an alternate place to land. You're gonna need to know what you're gonna do if something unexpected happens. On takeoff or landing, when you have slow speed and low altitude, know where you're gonna go. And otherwise, please, fly safely. To listen to more episodes of the show, go to FlightSafetyDetectives.com or the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association at PAMA.org and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Catch us next time when John Golia and Greg Fife talk about all things aviation. Thanks for listening.